in person, to those who are with us online, a joy to be able to gather together, to make much of the one who, who brings an end of all our sin and rescues us to life with God forever. What a glorious good news, gloriously good news we get to delight in and share in. Other news to share in. On Wednesday, June 1st, we announced the beginning of a search for a new assistant pastor here at Trinity. This assistant pastor is going to help in the areas of worship, <coughs> excuse me, and assimilation. As we seek to live out the vision for Trinity Baptist Church and leading people to treasure Christ through all of life, the elder and trustee teams have prayerfully considered the additional pastoral support to live out this vision effectively and purposefully with a long-term view for gospel ministry here in Nashua. We are seeking a like-minded pastor who has a shepherd's heart and will meet the description necessary for the position. This decision represents a number of variables. We desire and have a need for full-time shepherding care around our worship team, our audiovisual and streaming teams. We have a desire and need for full-time shepherding care and leadership for assimilation or another way to just describe that ministry that helps create clear and compelling pathways for people to feel and become connected at Trinity. And then thirdly, we, we desire supporting pastoral care to live out our vision effectively and purposefully for the long haul. Lots of prayerful consideration has gone into the development of this position. I know that I'm excited hopeful, a little anxious to see how the Lord will lead and provide. And so as we announce this, we also ask, we ask that you would please pray along with us, which you can do tonight together at our church-wide prayer night at 6 p.m. How about that? Double, it's an announcement in an announcement. I'm really excited about that. Anyway, at 6 p.m. tonight, you can pray with us here at our church-wide prayer night and pray along the way. Who knows how long this will be, but we are trusting the Lord. Don't hesitate to reach out for, with any questions or thoughts. We will discuss this more at our annual meeting on Sunday. Uh, yeah, that's the third announcement. Sunday, January, uh, excuse me, June 26th. Uh, please be sure to register for that as we'll have a meal and we'll conduct our annual meeting following the service. As a church family, we are certainly trusting God. We're taking steps of faith and are eager to strengthen Trinity for meaningful gospel ministry for the long haul, for the many years to come. And so please pray as we do this work. Thank you. Now, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to consider verses 1 through 6. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. So last summer, I announced that we would be going through Revelation. We began that in October, October 10th. We had a couple of breaks, you know, around Christmas and, and Easter, and we've had some global outreach Sundays along the way, but we've been working through Revelation uh, since the fall, and, and really it was announced last summer, and so many have probably wondered, what would we do when we got to this portion of Revelation? And we will try to tackle that together this morning. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you for your word, and your word is profitable for our souls and our lives and our church. And we pray that as we consider this passage, that it would be good for us, good to strengthen our faith and to bring you glory. So would you be with us now as we consider your truth? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage is kind of like the elephant in the room that we've sort of not looked at uh, since last October because it's dealing with this thing called the millennium and all the various views that people can have on that. There's been a lot of ink spilled over this by much smarter people than me uh, as they've gone about explaining it. We're going to tackle some of it today. But as we do try to tackle this and make sense of this passage, there is an overriding and undercurrent aim with what we're looking at. And this is one thing, before we get into some of the things that we will try to explain or try to explain and make sense, there is this one thing that we can't lose sight of, and that is this. When we read this passage, it's for our encouragement to not let go of Christ. It's for our encouragement. It is to encourage our faith that King Jesus reigns, that he is over all, that he wins, that we would be strengthened when we look at this passage. Even if we're confused, and even if that confusion continues after this message, we're still to look to this passage and be encouraged. That because Jesus reigns, we can hold on. So we're going to consider that. So here we're going to see that the return of King Jesus shows us that Jesus reigns, that he first reigns presently. Secondly, that he reigns powerfully. And thirdly, that Jesus reigns faithfully. And that as we consider the fact that Jesus reigns presently and powerfully and faithfully, that brings the the needed encouragement in the right now to hold on. We're not holding on to something that's hanging in the balance. We are holding on to the king who reigns over all. That's the overriding encouragement. Well, let's tackle it together. Jesus reigns presently. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3 and then the last part of 4 and into verse 5. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
And then again at the end of verse 4 and into 5. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So here we have in this passage this reference to a thousand years, which is affectionately called the millennium. It's referring to a period of time in which King Jesus reigns. Satan is bound, and the following, following, fallen followers, oof, fallen followers of Christ are resurrected and reigning alongside King Jesus. That being said, all of that we'll try to sort through, but again, just take that into context of what we've been considering in our Revelation series. This is clearly meant to be an encouraging picture for the church that's facing a life as hard, evil as real world, in which the, the situation around them was overwhelming and oppressive, pushing them and ostracizing them to the margins. Our, our intense bouts of persecution would just come up on the church at any point there toward the end of the first century. It was a church that was facing constant turmoil and constant beckoning to bail on Christ and embrace the, the broad Roman culture. So this visual that we see in Revelation is to be an encouragement to that church facing those kinds of situations and dynamics, which makes it very relevant for the church always. It's an always relevant passage, because the church is always facing those same kinds of difficulties the same kind of temptation to bail, the same kind of pressure and, and threat of persecution. Throughout the world, our brothers and sisters face this in a, in a different kind of way than we do, but it's always going on. And so it's an encouragement for us to know that Jesus reigns and that he reigns presently. Now, this thousand years, for those of you who are new to the faith or new to wrestling with Christ, this is a point of, uh, uh, there's a part of your growing up and maturing that you start to turn your attention to, how's this all going to end? And then you vigorously get into all of the various ways in which people reach the conclusions of how it's all going to end, and then usually passionately hold to those positions. Very cage stagey is kind of the, the in, in-house joke. You just get very stagey and cagey about your position. There are three main interpretations of how to take this passage. And while this is not a lecture, it's not a class, it's not a seminar, I'm trying to preach God's word, we do need to take a moment just to get our heads around what these three interpretations are. And so hopefully the slides will make sense as we move through. There's big words, but I'll try to explain what the big word means, um, and then we can dig into some of the features of each one. And then I'll tell you which one I'm holding to, and then we can go forward. How about that? All right. The first one, premillennialism. Premillennialism. Essentially, Jesus comes back before this millennium, before these thousand years. So, you know, the little prefix there at the beginning, pre, meaning before. And so he's coming back before. There are two types of premillennialism that are just sort of broadly in general evangelicalism. One is called historical, and the other is called dispensational. They both represent theological sort of uh, bases and stripes. But they both broadly follow the same basic pattern. There's far too much nuance to all of this for us to get into in a sermon, so I'm just hitting the broad strokes. 
So the broad basics pattern goes like this. Uh, first, as they looks at history and toward the end, we have this thing called the church age, what we live in right now, the church age. And the church age is the time of the gospel going forth, the church going to the ends of the earth, people getting saved, so on and so forth. In this view, there's a point at the end that Jesus returns in some fashion to gather up the church. So Jesus returns and gathers up the church. And then thirdly, Jesus establishes, according to this passage in Revelation 20, a physical kingdom on earth that will reign for a period of time. And then Jesus ushers in the eternal kingdom or the eternal state, what we associate with heaven, hell, glory, and so forth. So some notables about this. In the historic and dispensational view of premillennialism, they differ on a couple of things. One is they differ on the great tribulation, which we read about earlier in Revelation. The great tribulation is in a very intense worldwide global persecution against the church. The historic view sees it happening at the end of the church age. The dispensational view sees the church being spared from it between the church age and the millennium. And you have to do a lot of math in that view, and there's no math allowed today. So, uh, there's just too, too, too many nuances to work through. I'm just trying to give you the broad strokes. Another thing that we find is that, in this view, the resurrection of believers happens before the millennium, and the resurrection of unbelievers happens after, um, after the millennium. And then, within this view, some hold to a literal thousand-year reign. Others simply see it as a symbolic picture of a very long time. So that's one view. That's probably the most prevalent view in broadly general evangelical um, Christian, you know, Christ Christianity in our culture, our United States, probably what you're most familiar with if you grew up in the church. The second one is called post-millennialism, and, and then the post the prefix there referring to after. So Jesus comes back after the millennium. And this one carries with it a little bit more of an optimistic view on, on life. So here's how the pattern breaks down for this view. It says the church age that we're in eventually expands into the millennium as the gospel advances. So it eventually the gospel goes forth, goes out, and expands more and more and more and more and more of the world turns to Christ. Then Jesus returns, bringing about the resurrection of all people. And then after that, he does all of his admin that he has to do before eternity. And then Jesus ushers in the eternal state. As I said, it's a very positive outlook of how the gospel advances in the world. Bringing about great revival and renewal as more and more of the world's population becomes Christian. The gradual age of peace and righteousness will last for a very long time, not necessarily a literal thousand years. So again, seeing thousand years as a symbolic picture of a very long time. All right, that leads us to the third one. And the third one is awe millennialism. And again, the prefix, the prefix is, is, is important. Awe just meaning no, not, none. It describes the present church age and doesn't see a future literal millennium to come. And so the pattern goes <clears throat> like this. <clears throat> this is the church age. 
in which Jesus reigns and, through, and reigns so through the church and through the gospel. And then Jesus returns. And when he returns, he ushers in everything. Judgment, glory, the eternal state, his eternal kingdom. So that's it. This view sees Revelation 21 through 6 being fulfilled now. And this period of time is that of an unknown length that's symbolically described as a thousand years. The amillennial view also sees the great tribulation as occurring throughout the church age, as the church always is experiencing opposition and persecution to varying degrees throughout its history. So this third one is the position that I hold, and probably isn't too much of a surprise given how I've preached through Revelation. Kind of been playing cards with them, facing out to everybody. You know, we've stressed highly that this is a very unique letter in the Bible, a letter written to the church for its encouragement, a letter that is prophetic and apocalyptic, meaning it's talking about things to come with great intensity and then focuses on the very end with highly symbolic fashion, bringing in lots of highly symbolic fashion from the Old Testament prophet books. It's very important, I will say this, that we do take seriously how we go about understanding Scripture. How we go about interpreting Scripture, it is very important. My desire is to be as consistent as I can be, just as everybody else who holds a different position. It's very important how we understand Scripture. That being said, when we talk about things like the very end, we must talk about them with an open hand. Being dogmatic about the very end is kind of silly when Jesus says, yeah, the hour is unknown, y'all, so don't worry about it. Keep holding on to me, following me, and making disciples. So that's kind of where I land. Tried to be consistent in how I've been preaching through Revelation and see this as a great encouragement for the church at any age or stage of the church's history. And the great encouragement is this. No matter what, no matter pre, post, ah, whatever, no matter where we land on that issue, King Jesus' victory over everything is our encouragement and unwavering hope. Period. He wins. Remember our interpretive key as we've gone through this. Life is hard. Evil is real. God is in control. Jesus wins. So hold on. So hold on. So what that means is this, the rest of my message is coming from the view of one who would hold to amillennialism and understanding this passage as a present day encouragement so where I would take this to apply to our hearts is that the present reign of King Jesus means present hope for our lives. Because Jesus reigns presently through the church in this world over everything, we can live with hope now. Because Jesus reigns presently, we can live with hope now. We do not live out our lives with no hope. We do not live out our lives with a wishful hope, a maybe hope. Rather, we live out our lives with a sure hope in a presently reigning and ruling King Jesus. I'm going to take us back to a passage that is super familiar to us, and that is Matthew chapter 28. 
At the very end of Matthew chapter 28, we get what is called the Great Commission. Very familiar words that are very important for us right now. Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his reign and rule, and he returns back into heaven before he returns back to usher into his eternal kingdom. He says these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority. King Jesus has all authority now. Not just later, now. And he has all that authority over everything, everywhere, always. He is in charge of the heavens and the earth and every little crack and square inch in between. Seen and unseen, there isn't anything outside of his reign and rule, all authority. He has it, and he has it now. And then he's with his people to the very end of the age, to the very end of history, to the very end of it all. He is with his people, reigning now, present. So the church in 32 AD and 482 AD and 1236 AD and 2022 can always see and know and look that King Jesus is reigning right now over everything everywhere and he is with us right now everywhere we are and no point are we outside of it it's encouraging Jesus present reign means present hope for you and I In this life is hard, evil is real world. It's not a wish, it's a surety, and it's an encouragement. He reigns presently, but he also reigns powerfully. Jesus reigns powerfully. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that... He might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so we find here that binding of Satan. And so we need to go about understanding what this highly symbolic, intense picture is conveying. A powerful angel shows up with a great chain, overpowers Satan, and binds Satan up. Satan is now limited in some capacity, but he's not totally vanquished yet. So something is going on here. He's limited, but not totally vanquished. It's like putting a ferocious dog on a leash. If you are within the reach of the leash, then great harm will fall upon you. But if you're outside the reach of the leash, no harm. In some capacity, Satan is like that. He's a ferocious dog on a leash. Satan was able to cause global problems on a different level, but now something has changed. Something has come along that has hampered Satan's reach. The binding of Satan is primarily about the very first advent of Christ, in which in his incarnation, Jesus defeats Satan's temptation, defeats our penalty of sin, and defeats the power of death. I love Colossians chapter 2. You can read through all of that. And then 14 and 15 talk about how Jesus goes about doing that. And what God is accomplishing through that. And in verse 15. Colossians 2 says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame. By triumphing over them. Where does he triumph over them? On the cross. 
on the cross. Something different has happened. And we see that in Jesus. In verse John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus arrived in his first advent was to destroy the works of the devil. Something has happened, something significant, something that has changed everything. It's not something that we necessarily have to wait for and anticipate. We actually, we actually get to know it now. We experience it now because Christ came. The Son of God took on our humanity and lived a life that we could not live and overcame a death we could not overcome and defeated an enemy we could not defeat. Tell me that's not significant. This significant thing, this gospel that we get to proclaim is is the rejoicing over the fact that Satan has been bound because Christ has arrived. And Christ is busy plundering through the gospel. That's right, plundering. I love Matthew chapter 12. In it, Jesus was doing some amazing Jesus things and people were like wild by it and marveling it. But the religious leaders who were threatened by it said that, oh, he's working for Satan. And, and so Jesus very, you know, carefully and clearly points out the logical breakdown of, of that statement. And he says something quite significant in verse 28. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Through the gospel, Jesus is plundering. Plundering. Lives are being saved, rescued. He said as much at the very beginning of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he's, Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, his first ministry words, if you will, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's here, it's now. And Mark 1, 15 is immediately after, in Mark's gospel account, Jesus overcoming Satan in his temptation. Powerful reign right now. Not something to wait for later, right now. When we delight and declare, when we make much of the gospel, we're making much of the fact that Jesus reigns presently and powerfully. And powerful reign means great gospel purpose for us. Powerful reign means gospel purpose. Because Jesus reigns powerfully, we can live with gospel purpose. We are not called to aimless, apprehensive, or apathetic lives, just biding our time until we die or Jesus returns. That's not what we're called to. No, we are called to a great gospel purpose. Back at that passage in the end of Matthew chapter 28, what does it say? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there it is. With great gospel power, we go out into this world. We go out into our lives, out into our communities, out into our workplaces, out to where we play, out to where we live, our neighborhoods, our people, the people in our lives with great gospel purpose, armed with something greater than what's in this world. Jesus powerfully reigns through his people, through his church, making much of the gospel in this dark world. And the great news is that people get saved. People get rescued. He reigns presently and powerfully. 
If that's not enough encouragement, then here we find he reigns faithfully. Jesus reigns faithfully. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Jesus reigns faithfully. Friends, none of Jesus's are ever lost. None. None are lost. They will be resurrected and reign, reigning with him, with their king. Followers of Christ who have lost their lives, especially for their faith, experience the faithfulness in Christ, of Christ in that they are reunited with him and reign alongside him. The world has disregarded, disparaged, destroyed their lives. Yet Jesus remains true to his word and keeps them all. None are lost. Now, in our passage, we find a first resurrection and a second death. Some things to note about this. Well, if there's a first resurrection, it implies a second resurrection. If there's a second death, it implies a first death. So what's going on? Let's take a moment to get our heads around that. So first is, the first resurrection is referring to the soul of believers going to where Christ is. The soul of believers going to where Christ is. Philippians 1, 21 through 23 says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, which means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The Apostle Paul writing those letters to the Philippian church is saying, if I'm going to live, it's going to be for Christ. If I'm going to die, I'm going to go be with Christ. And it sounds at that moment like, hey, that sounded really good to Paul. <laughs> And maybe you felt that too. Maybe you've joked that, said, oh, uh, let's, I'm good now. I'm good with life. Let's go. You can bring me home, Jesus. You know, maybe you've felt that before. First resurrection is referring to the fact that the soul believers go to where Christ is. The second resurrection then refers to, you know, Christ's return when he resurrects everybody and brings about his eternal judgment on those who are his into glory and onto those who reject him into judgment. The next thing we have then is the first and second death. First and second death. So the first death is physical. Every one of us will face it. Physical death. Just We know that that is unfortunately a part of life because of the fall, because of sin. Physical death comes to us all. Second death is that uh, is eternal. And that's a death that you do not want. Everyone experiences the first. Believers have victory over the second. That means the first resurrection means there's no threat of second death. You are in Christ. Second death, that eternal death, is no threat over you. Why? Because Christ has already won. He's faithful. 
Faithful reign means for us then faithful living. Because Jesus reigns faithfully, you and I, we can hold on no matter what, even at death. In the face of death, you and I can hold on no matter what because Jesus remains faithful. You and I, we are not hanging in the balance with unknown destinations and overwhelming circumstances causing us to want to bail on Christ because maybe something else might be better. Rather, you and I, we have a king who faithfully holds the balance of all our lives and because he does that and holds the cosmos and the heavens and the earth and everything else faithfully, you and I, we can hold on to him. Nothing hangs in the balance. Let's go back to our passage in Matthew 28. I love the first two verses leading up to the more familiar words of the Great Commission. Verses 16 and 17. I'm so glad these words are in the Bible. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm so glad that's there. It means I'm not crazy. They worshiped the resurrected Jesus. They hung out with the resurrected Jesus. They ate with him. They talked with him. They laughed with him. They touched him and poked him. They were with Jesus. And then he's explaining to them how he fulfills all of God's purposes for all of history. He unlocked everything for them. And he's equipping them to then go do this ministry, call them into this ministry. What an amazing retreat those 40 or whatever days would have been. Awesome, right? They worshiped, and yet some doubted. It's encouraging. It's encouraging that they were with literally physically present, resurrected Jesus, and yet struggled with the worship and the doubt. Worship and doubt. Wrestle and struggle. Strive and stumble. It's not the faithfulness that we muster up in us that gives us a sure hope. It's the faithfulness of our king who holds on to worshipers and stumblers all the way to the very end. Holds on to those who strive and struggle all the way to the very end. It's his faithfulness that gives us courage and hope to live out our lives holding on to him now. We can hold on Jesus reigns he does so presently powerfully and faithfully that's what matters most when we come to this passage that's what matters most to us right now it is the basis of our hope it is the vigor of our purpose and it is the steadiness of our faith followers of Christ in this life is hard evil is real world Hopefully, the overriding and subtle objective of this sermon, our encouragement to hold on, has hit our hearts. Because King Jesus, he is reigning. He is ruling. 
And one day he is returning. So hold on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we come to passages that are hard. Hard to fully understand and grasp. But yet you, Spirit, who inspired this word is the same Spirit at work in our hearts. And we pray that right now we would have that encouragement. The encouragement to know that you, God, are reigning and ruling and that our King is returning. If there are any hearts that are hard toward you or far from you with us right now, I would pray that even looking at the very end and considering the, the return of King Jesus would prompt those hearts to turn to you through faith. Would you do that good work, God? And for those of us who are holding on where we see ourselves in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, worshiping and doubting, striving and stumbling, God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us a view of our King that encourages our hearts all the more to live for his glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.